looking at where Salmonella and Campylobacter are entering the poultry production chain. So we're sampling those breeders, those pullets, those breeders, the hatchery, the broiler farms, the transport, and the processing plant, all the way through the chain in a single complex. So what we've been able to do is take samples from each of those places, isolate pathogens from different types of samples, and um, so far, that's, that's as far as we made it. Our next step is to do some whole genome sequencing. We can look to see if the salmonella that we may have found, say, at the, the hatchery, is that the same salmonella that we're finding on that parts rinse that we get out of the very end of the processing plant before it goes into the box? So that kind of helps us look at, is it the same? Where is it coming in? Um, so it's, it's a really big picture way of trying to look at those bacteria. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at Eastman.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Doug Korber, and I'm one of the hosts of the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm joined this morning by uh, Dr. Diana Barassa, who is Associate Professor and Extension Specialist at Auburn University. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I've given a brief introduction, uh, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So um, as you mentioned, I am an Associate Professor Extension Specialist here at Auburn University. I work mainly in the area of poultry processing with a couple of tracks. Um, the big track is food safety, and I also work a little bit in the area of stunning methods and their impact on physiology. So how did you get interested in poultry? Well, that, that goes way far back. So um, I was one of those 4-H kids that had the, the poultry project. I had my backyard chickens. And um, from there, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And after that first semester of college, I realized that that was not in my future. So it was time to retool a little bit. So I, I stuck with animal science for a little bit until I ended up at the University of Georgia as an undecided major. And they just so happened to put me with an, an academic advisor that was from the poultry science department. And I liked chickens and I liked animals. And he, he really sold the program and convinced me to do my bachelor's degree in poultry science. And I really enjoyed the, the program, the, the small class sizes, that, that interaction with 
the other students and faculty that you just don't get in a larger department. So what happened next is that, you know, usually the poultry science departments, they have each of their students do an internship. And my internship was a little different. So instead of going to a poultry integrator, I went to the USDA Agricultural Research Service because I already knew that I was really interested in doing science, doing lab work, that sort of thing. So I ended up working for USDA ARS for my internship. And then I continued on with USDA while also getting my master's degree in poultry science and food safety area, and then moving on to a doctorate in biochemistry and molecular biology. So once I completed my doctorate in in the more hard sciences, I, I realized that agriculture is where I wanted to be. I wanted to get back to poultry. And then I went from there to um, my assistant professor position here at Auburn University, and that was back in 2016. So is there an earliest memory or maybe a most formative memory of poultry that you think really was the the switch that that made you decide this is what you wanted to do? Well, I I don't think anybody ever grows up thinking I'm going to be a poultry scientist when I grow up. Uh, We all come from different backgrounds. And this is really one of my favorite things to ask people, especially in the industry. How did you get into chickens? Because it's always a fun question. But um, for me, it was really that that 4-H project as a kid, having chickens, and I enjoyed you know having the birds. But an, another part that I really liked um, was the chickens themselves. So um, I didn't like the slaughter part. You know, my 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 father went ahead and took care of that, and when they were dead, he had me come back out, and I really loved seeing what was inside of them. So um, he would, you know, eviscerate the birds and then he'd have to go and try to explain to me what each part was and what it did. And, and my, my poor father, he he's not an animal scientist, but he did his very best. And it was just very interesting to me to see the chicken and, and basically how it how it worked. That's the beginning. So then what what about microbiology specifically really attracted you? So um, as I was going through all this, this educational process and got into my, my internship at USDA ARS, um, that particular program did food safety work, particularly with poultry. So um, once I got into there, you could, I could really see when you're looking at food safety as it applies to an agricultural product, it really makes a huge impact not just on the chickens and necessarily their health, but it makes a big impact in the general public at large. We all need a, a safe food supply. We supply poultry meat to the entire world. And having that as safe as possible for people, I think, is really important. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, along the way, were there particular mentors or colleagues that uh, had a really important uh, impact on your career path in in the, the things that you were interested in or the way that you approach your research? Oh, absolutely. So th- there's been really people at every step along the way, starting from you know, high school all the way to where I am now. So um, when I was at, at UGA getting my education, uh, my major professor for my master's degree was uh, Dr. Dan Fletcher. And he really helped me kind of figure out how to do research how a lot of that worked. And in his area was also poultry processing, not necessarily food safety, but he was open enough to allow me to explore my own interests and, and advise me on how to do that. 
Um, my my main major mentor through all this time was was Dr. Jeff Beer at USDA ARS. So I started my internship with him. And then I worked for him for 15 years before I came to, to Auburn University. And, you know, he started out teaching science, research, how to do all this. And then by the time I got to the, the end of my education, I was at a place where I could design my own studies, do my own experiments, write my own publications. So when I came to Auburn, I was, I was ready. To, to move on to this new role. So you spent 15 years at, at USDA and, and then the past seven years uh, and counting at Auburn. Uh, what was the transition like going from government to, to academia? So, so transitioning, it's pretty different. So working for the federal government has its benefits and drawbacks. So working for IRS, what they have is a specific project area and a project plan that you work within. So they provide the funding to work within that specific project plan, but it's very um, kind of narrowly detailed what area you'll be working in. Now, when it came to Auburn University, it is a lot different. So I was hired as poultry processing, right? And generally in the area of food safety. But here at Auburn, there's a whole lot more freedom to determine what it is that I want to study. So it's not pre-described. I have to figure out what's what's important, what's new, what's interesting, and then go after the funding to get that that work done. So it's quite a bit different. So you've had maybe uh, more opportunity to uh, exercise some of that creativity and, and uh, independence uh, in your in your academic job. Um, has it been uh, productive or uh, have you really uh, found it uh, intriguing or interesting or productive to, to collaborate with industry? Oh, yes. Um, I, I really enjoy the way that my position is set up. So I'm half research and half extension. And what's happened with that is with my extension component, I go out, I meet with poultry processors, I go to poultry processing plants and you know the commercial industry, the real thing. And when I talk to them, I, I learn what their challenges are, uh, what they're interested in knowing about. And what happens is I learn what's going on now in their industry and I bring that back to the lab to look for solutions to current problems. So it's very applied type of research that I do. And uh, what I'm trying to do is find solutions that can be used immediately. So you're, you're working in a similar area on uh, food safety and microbiology, but has the research focus changed between uh, what you were doing at the USDA compared to what you're doing at uh, Auburn now? A bit. So so what I do at Auburn now is it can be a little bit... Um, I'm going to start that one over a little bit. Okay, they can fix that. So what I do at Auburn now is quite a bit different in that we do a lot of different things. So um, there's an interest in looking at where salmonella is entering the entire uh, production chain. So instead of just sticking with processing, what I can do is I can go out and we can start looking at the the pullets, the breeders, the hatchery, the broilers. So I'm not confined to one area, but we can reach out and look at different areas. I also have multiple students and each of those students has their own project. So while they're all under the food safety umbrella, they're in different topic areas. So I have one working on bacteriophage. I have one working on um, processing plant interventions that require no antimicrobials. So uh, we, we 
work in different areas and then bring the, all that information back together for a big picture. So you're really uh, providing on, on multiple uh, topics or multiple levels strategies to reduce the incidence of, of contamination. So what are the big issues, just big picture kinds of things? What are you working on um, related to producing safe poultry products? So um, as I, I briefly mentioned, one of the big projects that we're working on is looking at where salmonella and campylobacter are entering the poultry production chain. So we are sampling those breeders, those pullets, those breeders, the hatchery, broiler farms, the transport, and the processing plant, all the way through the chain in a single complex. So what we've been able to do is take samples from each of those places, isolate pathogens from different types of samples. And um, so far, that's, that's as far as we made it. Our next step is to do some whole genome sequencing. We can look to see if the salmonella that we may have found, say, at the, the hatchery, is that the same salmonella that we're finding on that parts rinse that we get out of the very end of the processing plant before it goes into the box. So that kind of helps us look at, is it the same? Where is it coming in? Um, so it's, it's a really big picture way of trying to look at those bacteria. Yeah, so it, it sounds like you, you're really covering the value chain. And so um, where, where do you find are the critical points? Um, where do we really start um, um, running into uh, maybe increased carriage of, of salmonella? So um, generally what we've seen so far is that the, the pullets and the breeder flocks are very clean. So we, we find very few salmonellas there. And we're not only sampling um, the birds in their areas, we're sampling within the house, but also outside the house. And, but when we get to the hatchery, that's when we start seeing salmonella pop up a little bit. So it's popping up there. We're seeing it in the broiler houses and, of course, from the broiler house through the transport and into the processing plant. So I think the critical areas are really going to be that, that hatchery forward. And what we don't know necessarily yet is if those salmonellas that we're finding at the hatchery, are those the same ones in the processing plant? And if they're not, that pretty much means that we need to move forward a little bit in that, that continuum. So if that seminal in the plants is different than the hatchery, then it's coming in somewhere in between. And what we're doing is narrowing down where those salmonellas are entering and then where they're coming from. And then we can devise strategies to combat that. So um, I guess one of the questions that I have then is if, if we have breeder production, uh, hatching egg production, where we've really, it seems like we've got pretty good control of things um, what's stopping us from uh, maybe achieving the same at our broiler production level? Breeder and broiler production are, are a good bit different. Um, we have a lot more broiler farms than we have breeder farms. Um, sometimes those houses are structured a bit differently or there's less biosecurity. Um, here in the U.S., a lot of the broiler houses have dirt floors. We reuse litter, which uh, there's arguments pro and against reuse litter. So there's different strategies. There's a lot more people involved. Um, it can get a lot more complicated. Um, some, some other strategies I think that would be useful on, on the broiler side would be to better train the growers and the service techs on things that can be implemented to reduce the influx of salmonella or salmonella proliferation within those broiler houses. 
what can what can the industry do to to encourage that? I mean, there are training programs or um, other other means to 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 get uh, to, to move the industry forward. I guess. Well, um, if I had to design something, I think that uh, if we wanted to reduce the amounts of salmonella in broiler houses, uh, there have to be incentives. So if we could incentivize the, the growers to produce flocks that had less or no salmonella, whether that's a monetary incentive or some other kind of incentive, I think that could be really useful. But in, in order to incentivize it, we also have to provide them with tools that they can use uh, a list of um, best uh, practices such as improving rodent control, uh, proper, uh, say, windrow composting, or um, reducing uh, birds entering the building, good biosecurity practices, say, is, you know, not wearing the same boots between houses. So we, we can incentivize it, but we also have to provide tools that they can use that are effective. So it, it's combination of uh, uh, education and, and, as you said, providing tools that uh, sometimes require some investment. So you mentioned some of the things that could be done, and I think you mentioned windrow uh, composting. Um, can you describe that a little bit? What is it and, and how does it reduce salmonella? So windrow composting is basically creating long piles of litter within the broiler house. So the, the, the litter is piled up, the interior of that pile gets very hot and it kills the salmonella. Then that pile has to be rotated so that what was on the outside is now on the inside. It gets very hot, kills the salmonella, and then that pile is then spread out back to the floor before the new chucks come in to, to allow ammonia to be released. So it it's very effective. Oh, that's interesting. And the doesn't sound like uh, it requires a, a big investment in in uh, additional facilities or additional equipment. Is that something that producers can do fairly fairly efficiently? Well, equipment equipment wise, you have to have the the right kind of tractor to move the litter because it's you can't do that by hand. So it does require that kind of equipment, and it requires a good bit of time and and attention. So it it requires that equipment and maintenance. So it's it's not easy, but it's definitely doable. So within a normal series of production cycles, does it add a lot of time to downtime between flocks? Well, downtime between flocks has changed a little bit, depending on whether it's uh, conventional production or um, antibiotic-free production. So usually those ABF flocks are going to have more downtime in between the flocks than a conventional production. So you want at least a week or even longer to do windrow composting because it, it just takes time and it has to be turned. Um, so you've, you've worked with primarily salmonella. Um, you talked about campylobacter as well. So um, what do you think the, uh, uh, the research going forward will be to understand campylobacter better and, and control that? Well, right now, um, a lot of the work that's going on is on salmonella. Um, salmonella is a little bit easier to work with. We know a whole lot about it, but I, I think you're, you're right that Campylobacter is going to be extremely important moving forward. Um, the trouble is it, it has a lot of challenges to work with it. So it's very difficult to grow. It's very difficult to work with it in the lab. Um, a lot of people have been working on, say, a, a Campylobacter vaccine, but there has not been much success. So it's really difficult to work with. But it's also very difficult to kill. So you kind of have that, that double, 
double whammy there. Um, a lot of the work I do is basic applied interventions so we can look and see, does this reduce Campylobacter like it does Salmonella? Oftentimes it doesn't. But I think what's needed is a closer look. So we need to really get into the molecular mechanisms of Campylobacter. How is it surviving even though we can't culture it? How is it uh, persisting so well through our, our processing interventions? So we, we need to figure out the, the why, molecular-wise, so we can have some better options for combating it. Yeah, so you mentioned it, it's not culturable. Um, are there advances coming or, or recent or near future or maybe distant future in, in techniques or technologies that will allow us to get a better understanding of uh, how to control Campylobacter? Well, I think it really helps that uh, whole genome sequencing is a lot less expensive than it used to be. So we can you know, get the sequences of the, the strains of importance so we can pull a Campylobacter jejuni, say, from products. So that's the one, that Campylobacter is the one that made it all the way through. What makes that Campylobacter special or different than a Campylobacter that's easily killed by a proxacetic acid dip, which is typically used in a processing plant? So we can kind of dig in there and, and look a little bit of why do some make it through all of our interventions and some don't. That'd be a good starting point. And, and those tools, they're, they're there already. They're being used on other food safety microorganisms. There just aren't as many people working in the Campylobacter realm as there are in the, the other food safety pathogens. So um, if you if you had a, a favorite microbe, uh, microbe that, uh, you know, really fascinated you, either in terms of its pathology or, or maybe its potential application uh, as a, as a, um, as a, a probiotic, for example, um, is there is there one microorganism that just really uh, fascinates you? Well, I think I think I'll have to go back to the the food safety pathogens and and again back to Campylobacter just because it's so frustrating and makes it interesting. <laughs> so like when we look in hatcheries, it's so dry that we simply can't culture it, but but it's around. It's it's there. If you use molecular methods, you can find it. So that that viable but non-culturable state that it goes into makes it really difficult and complicated. But that's that's what I, I found frustration interesting. I suppose you you like a challenge. That's right. Yeah, oh, great. So um, your training's in microbiology, but you've also been working recently on poultry uh, euthanasia, particularly uh, stunning at the processing plant. Can you can you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing? Absolutely. So um, I'm going to start with pointing out that stunning and euthanasia are not the same thing. So I teach um, one lecture of the poultry processing class here at Auburn, and this is something that I point out. When we euthanize a bird, we want to kill the bird for um, humanely as possible for a health type reason. We're not going to eat those birds. Now, when we're stunned birds, that's for processing for a food product. So stunning and euthanasia aren't the same thing. And I specifically spend most of my time with um, stunning. So we, here at Auburn, we have a poultry um, processing plant with both electrical and gas stunning capabilities. And I'm a microbiologist. So why am I working on stunning, stunning research? So it, 
that kind of comes in with the, the extension work that I do. So I go out and I talk to industry and they want to know about what's important with stunning. Should they go to gas stunning? Should they not? What are the differences? And, you know, that brings it back to the research. So they're interested in stunning. So I want to have a little bit of a look at it. And I uh, had this situation where there's question about halal acceptability with halal the birds have to die from the neck cut and not from the stunt. So the uh, we had a group come over in conjunction with UGA, a group come over from the United Arab Emirates, and they wanted to see what happens when chickens are stunned. So they wanted to see it and understand it so that they could bring that back and discuss whether or not stunning is an acceptable way to process chickens when we're producing halal meat, which we produce a lot of here in the United States. And that really got me interested also in, you know, what is happening to that chicken? You know, I can see it with my eyes. I can see that when we electrically stun birds, if we don't do the net cut here in the U.S., they will wake up. That That's part of the process, part of the goal. When I'm looking at the chicken, I can see that they wake up. But the other questions come up as in how long does the heart beat? Are they dying from the net cut or something else? Which brings us around to controlled atmosphere stunning. When the bird comes out of the stunner, they're not breathing. They sure look dead, but are they dead? So we've done work looking at um, electrocardiograms. How long, how is the heart beating when they come out? How long does the heart beat for? Is that acceptable and not acceptable for halal production? So we're really looking at the physiology of what happens, which has led to, is that good or bad for welfare? That's led to what happens to meat quality. So just talking about meat quality, are there differences between uh, the controlled atmosphere stunning and electrical stunning? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we've recently done some research looking at a comparison of controlled atmosphere stunning and electrical stunning in a commercial processing facility. So that's where the extension comes in, where I can work with the poultry integrator in a real life situation instead of just, you know, a box in the lab. So uh, what we've seen is there are changes in the blood metabolites. So we take blood sample and look what's going on there. But we also do see changes in the, the meat pH. So the pH decline changes. We've seen some differences in uh, wing damage that occurs in the commercial facilities. So uh, absolutely, there are differences in electrical versus gas-stunned meat products. Um, are there potential impacts on, on meat quality and, and uh, for example, uh, muscle myopathies, uh, woody breast, spaghetti breast, and so on? So I, I think that is an excellent question and a really interesting direction for research. Uh, I do not know of anybody that has looked at a comparison of stunning methods and how those impact myopathies, but uh, predicting and uh, making a prediction based on kind of what we know about those myopathies with with woody breasts, I don't know that that'd be that much different because we know that the birds that have woody breasts have it as a live bird coming into the processing plant. Now, spaghetti meat, that, that's a different thing. So we know that with spaghetti breast, if you can um, slow the speed of uh, the rate of pH decline, that helps with spaghetti meat. And we also know if we cool them very quickly, we have um, less spaghetti breast um, visible. So I really think that that pH decline, that that respiratory acidosis that goes on when birds are breathing CO2 results in a pH decline of the blood. We also know it results in a 
pH decline of the breast fillets, that's, I believe, will have some kind of impact on the presence of the spaghetti meat that we see. Yeah, sounds like an interesting uh, direction for future research. So I think you've also done some work on on-farm euthanasia. Um, is that been influenced by uh, the work that you've done in processing plants or is it uh, an additional uh, side quest or um, how did that come about? Well, <clears throat> that came up when uh, the U.S. Poultry and Egg um, Foundation had put out a call for proposals and one of their topics was large bird euthanasia. So myself, in conjunction with Neoni Jacobs at Virginia Tech and Jeff Beer at ARS, we put together a proposal to look at different methods for large birds. Because, you know, broiler breeders, turkeys are very difficult to do manual cervical dislocation. And um, when we when got into looking at the different euthanasia methods and how those impacted the bird physiology, that really helped in that uh, we were able to look at those electrocardiograms, how fast is the bird dying? Uh, we could look at um, other visual cues such as length of movement, uh, eye membrane reflex, to look at the, the welfare of the birds. And that ended up kind of tying into some of the stunning research that I do because we, you know, we were doing electrocardiograms there. So really, euthanasia and stunning are different, but the physiology of, essentially the physiology of death is um, something that's extremely important to look at from both the euthanasia and the um, stunning aspects. So we're, we're starting to get into maybe a little bit, uh, uh, an issue that uh, the industry, it, it's a reality for the industry, but you know has the potential to maybe raise some eyebrows in the general public. So what do you think is important about on-farm, or what, it, sorry, let me start that again. So what do you think is important for the general public to understand about euthanasia in the poultry industry? Well, I think it's important for them to understand that sometimes it's it's necessary. So if we have a, an injured or sick bird, it's extremely important to, to euthanize that animal so that it doesn't suffer. Now, on a larger scale euthanasia, say if there you know an avian influenza outbreak, we have to euthanize an entire farm or entire house of birds. <clears throat> Doing that can be quite difficult. There's different methods, say, with uh, carbon dioxide or in the case of layers with ventilation shutdown. And the the need to euthanize thousands of birds, it, it's a difficult thing to do. But in, in this case, it's for the welfare of all those other birds. So if we have one farm with avian influenza, um, being able to euthanize those birds in a humane manner it's it's sad, but it's important so that the farm five miles down the road, if we do nothing, then that other farm could get infected. And then those birds would be suffering and dying from this virus if we didn't euthanize the first farm. So it's it's a difficult thing, but it's necessary in order to protect the other bird. Yeah, and I think it's important that that people understand, you know, that uh, the industry is is researching um, topics like this. Uh, you know, with with the the goal of of being as humane as possible and and ensuring that the things that we we do um, are uh, yeah as as humane as possible. So we know a lot about mass depopulation and what is um, a better welfare or not as good a welfare. And there's been a lot of research done in that area. And 
we, we have a good idea of how to make that happen with the, the minimal amount of suffering. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. All right, so let's let's change uh, directions maybe a little bit. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about mentorship. Um, what's your approach to being a mentor? So um, as I mentioned before, I worked under Dr. Jeff Beer at ARS for 15 years. So um, that's that's not usually typical of what student the the length of time that students are mentored. So I really take a lot from that previous relationship and being able to teach my students the things that I think are important. So it's not only the the process or the steps for doing research, analyzing data, writing a publication, but it's also a lot about how to work with other people. So part of my mentoring is you know, I, have, I have a relatively big lab and you don't just work on your own project, but you help the entire lab with all of their projects too. Um, if you have spare time and opportunity, you go to um, say an, another graduate student is doing some project that has nothing to do with you, but they need help on the farm. So you, you go out and you help other people. And every time you go and help somebody, you learn something. So it's really about teamwork, doing things together. Really, we can achieve a lot more when we work together. So it's a lot of teamwork. Uh, so looking at somebody just starting out uh, in in your type of career, uh, what advice would you give to somebody that uh, is maybe interested in, in microbiology and in the poultry industry? Talk to people, make connections. Um, that That's where extension has really helped me a lot. Um, I've met a lot of new, really interesting people that have different perspectives on the way that they see things. And that's really helped my program. I think that would help any new person reach out um, we, we have, you know, official mentoring programs here at the university, but the real mentoring happens when you stop by someone's door and you say, hey, how's it going? Can you help me with this problem? You know, ask for help. Talk to people. Go to those industry meetings. Uh, we find lots of interesting information. Uh, somebody will come in and give a talk about something and that, that sparks an idea. So, you know, when that sparks an idea, you bring it back, you you start investigating uh, whether that makes sense with the work you're already doing or it doesn't. So really getting out there, going to meetings, talking to people, uh, participating in your organizations, whether that's poultry science or, or some other organization, you know, really building the network is what dry, does an excellent job of driving a program. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found in, uh, in, in my career uh, in the poultry world is is that people are always happy to talk to you and and one of the things that 
kind of blew me away as a as a graduate student, new graduate student going to poultry sciences. You know, the professors whose papers I was reading would would take the time to answer questions, and um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's really uh, it it's not just it's not as daunting as somebody just starting out might think because people are really willing to, to take on that um, interest in, in people's careers. So um, in your opinion, what do you think are the most important personality traits or strengths um, that, that you look for in say a new graduate student um, or uh, what should people develop if they want to be successful in a job like you have? Well, um, it's important to, to do well in your studies and be able to write. But I, I think the the top thing I think is important is being able to interact with other people. So, you know, the, the, the studies and doing well and being able to think properly is important, but just that, that personal interaction prop that leads to problem solving conflict resolution is incredibly important for a student coming in to be able to work within the team, bounce ideas off of other people. Um, if, if say something comes up that they, they don't know how to do, they can reach out, figure out who knows how to do that. And they, they can reach out and, and learn those things instead of trying to figure things out for themselves. So it sounds like you really value collaboration in your, in your lab. So Thinking back over your career, uh, is there a, a lesson that you've uh, your job has taught you uh, that that maybe uh, one of those things where if you knew that when you started, uh, things would have been easier? Um, yeah, it's the same thing that we've been talking about. I don't have to do everything by myself. And when I first got here, it was me and and the lab, and I was used to, to just doing everything on my own without having any assistance. And now I've gotten to the point where I, I don't, I don't have to do everything. You know, I can be a piece of a project and um, l- l- I'll go back to the, the controlled atmosphere stunning work. I, I am not a physiologist. I'll tell you that right now. I am a microbiologist and a lot of the things that we're measuring, I maybe don't understand as well as I should because you know, I'm a microbiologist. So what I do is I've been working with uh, Bethany Baker-Cook and Charlene Hanlon here in our department. Um, Bethany Baker-Cook does welfare. Charlene Hanlon, she is a reproductive physiologist. And I I don't have to know everything because I can build a team with the expertise necessary to address the issue that we're looking at. So really, I I think valuing teamwork is the the thing that has really changed in my years since I started here. So... Are you a morning person or an evening person? When are you most effective at work? I'm most effective in the morning, although I, I wouldn't have said I was a morning person some years ago, but now that's when the magic happens. By, by two o'clock in the afternoon, it's over. So if, if you weren't uh, in your current position um, and you were in a completely different field, uh, what do you think you would like to, to be? If I had to pick something completely different, um, some, I would probably be an accountant. Uh, that sounds crazy, but uh, I, I enjoy the the data, you know, managing the numbers, figuring them out, which is part of what brought me to science is that, that lab work, that data, that analyzing things. So I, I think accounting kind of fits into that pretty well, too. Well, thanks very much, Diane. I uh, found it really interesting to find the work that you're doing and, and the uh, the application and, and even some of the new directions that you're going. Um, thanks for taking the time this morning to, uh, to 
to talk and, and uh, share the work that you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation to come and speak with you today. So where can our listeners find you online? Well, the, the easiest place to find me is probably uh, LinkedIn. So I, I use LinkedIn. I keep it updated. Um, my, my contact information can also be located at the Auburn University Poultry Science Department website. And you know the best place to, to contact me is through email or, or, or by phone. Well, thanks very much for your time this morning. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to connect again at Poultry Science or uh, some other meeting.